Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, and this is another ebullient episode of the Remnant podcast. Uh, some of you may or may not know, but I've been wildly busy, and so I um, was sort of desperate. To, we have the studio reserved on um, Tuesday mornings, and so I figured even though we didn't have one scheduled for today, I didn't know when I was going to be back, and I w- wanted to get one in the can. And so I was, over the weekend enraged by a tweet. This happens to me too often. I wouldn't say it happens to me a lot, but it happens to me too often. But um, Beto O'Rourke tweeted, the unprecedented concentration of wealth, power, and privilege in the United States must be broken apart. Opportunity must be fully shared with all. We must all have the opportunities to succeed together as one country. Now, this annoyed me for a bunch of different reasons. First of all, I like the idea of attacking certain segments of society together as one country, but also this consent, this 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 conception that we have unprecedented concentrations of wealth, power, and privilege in the United States. Um, some of that may be true, but the wealth part I'm very skeptical of. And so I sent an email to some eggheads that I um, respect, and also this guy Michael Strain, and. Uh, <laughs> uh, about this, and I was thinking about doing a column about it, and Michael had the best response. You know, well, let's do a podcast with him about this. So we're going to cover the waterfront on a bunch of different things, but uh, I wanted to start with this. Uh, Michael Strain is the Director of Economic Studies here at the American Enterprise Institute. You are a columnist from Bloomberg. You are, I think, few would dispute this, the, the, the real feather in your cap of your resume is that you are the godfather to Xavier Panuru. <laughs> That's correct. That's correct. Uh, he was six months old. Some consider to sort of be a almost almost like Neo from the Matrix in terms of pretty babies. It's something disturbingly pretty about that baby. <laughs> so anyway, uh, we figure we'll start there. Welcome, Michael. Sorry for that rambling introduction, but you're used to that kind of thing by now. <laughs> I am. And I'd like to know why you hate opportunity for all. I'm, I'm totally against opportunity for all. Uh, I want, but what I would like, I'm, I'm a little like Thanos in this regard. I think we should deny people opportunity on entirely random and arbitrary grounds. <laughs> like, just take a name out of the hat. Okay, Todd, you are hereby denied opportunity. You know? um, uh, so let's sort of start in the beginning. What broad, broad brushstrokes? How do you think about income inequality or inequality? I. I have a hard time thinking about inequality. It's a it's a deceptively complicated um subject. You know, on 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 the one hand it's very simple, right? You want to say that the rich are doing better and and the poor are doing worse. Figuring out who's rich and who is poor is is hard. Uh, how long they're rich and poor? How long they're rich and they're poor? Um uh, you know, what Measures do we want to think about when determining who is rich and and who is poor? Um, you know, how do we want to measure that gap? How do we want to see how it's changing over time? Why does it even matter? Do people really care? Uh, you know, when you, I mean, it's one of those things where when you're kind of on the surface, uh, it's very it's very easy to to have an opinion about this. But then when you start kind of digging, um, it becomes it becomes very complicated very quickly, and and and, and it's not at all clear um, whether whether people really really do care. Yeah, so it's funny. Daniel Borston in in uh, one of his books of the the Americas series, you know, he's America, the discoverers, the explorers, the inventors. I can't remember what they are, but in one of them, I guess it's the National Experience one. He points out that the whole idea of 
measuring income was kind of an American invention in the sense that people used to talk about wealth. And it was since almost all wealth was tied to land, it was inherited. You were, you know, you never sort of income was kind of a black box for a lot of people. But then in America, all of a sudden, you had people who didn't come from a big, from a prominent class, you know, they came from nothing. And income was this new way of um, measuring the economics of mobility and all of these things because people weren't attached to land the way they used to and they weren't attached to inherited wealth the way they used to be. And like so like even the phrase income inequality, it, it still bothers me a little bit because it it assumes, you know, that every wealthy person out there is is measured by their income, right? I, I don't I'm not make, not, not making my point right, but like there's just so much imprecision in the way we talk about this stuff that um, whenever I get into a debate with somebody about income inequality, it always it gets very slippery very, very quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe, you know, so think about the things that you might care about. You might care about consumption. Mm-hmm. You know, you might you might care about the, you know, cars people have and the houses people live in and the, you know, food people eat and the quality of medical care people can receive. And you might want to see how different groups of Americans have, have different consumption levels. You might actually care about income. You might care about the flow of resources that come into a house every month or every year that they can use for consumption or for savings. That's a perfectly reasonable thing to care about. You might care about earnings which is the flow of resources coming into a house every month or every year that come from from work from 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 jobs uh, you know as opposed to income which you know some of it comes from work some of it comes from capital investment uh, you know some of it comes from the government in the form of transfer payments annuities um, annuities etc cetera, etc cetera. you might care about wealth which is which is not the flow of income coming in but 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 the but the stock of resources that people have access to and you have to you know decide what groups do you care about and you know a lot of the discussion has been about the top 1% uh, in recent years you see a lot of people including many people on the left who say no 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 we really should care about the top 0.1% mm-hmm. uh, uh, but if you're if you're you know interested kind of in you know, I mean, ninety-nine <laughs> percent of the people don't live in the top one percent, right. and never. Uh, well, and, well, I shouldn't say never will, but by definition, the top there will always be a top one. There will always be a top one percent because yeah, yeah. that's math. And ninety-nine point nine percent of people don't live in the top zero point one percent. And you know, the the kind of uh, you know underlying economic dynamics at play in you know the bottom 99 can be different than than, than than in the top. And so if what you're concerned about are, you know, how how are the overwhelming majority of people in the country doing, 99% of the people in the country, what are the underlying economic forces that shape how they're doing and how can public policy respond to that, you know, this, this kind of obsessive focus on the top 1% seems confusing. Now, if you're worried about, I mean, you, you know, you're increasingly seeing on the left people openly arguing that, you know, the point of tax policy should be to establish a, a just, uh, you know, more level society. And if you're worried about concentrations of income and concentrations of wealth, you know, for reasons, you know, about their political influence or whatever, you know, then maybe then maybe caring about that, about that top one percent of the top one tenth of one percent makes more sense. But it's just I mean, even this even this conversation uh, indicates 
you know how quickly you can you can arrive at confusion and and, and just how much is actually going yeah, that's, on. That's largely my point, my fault because I started on a point and then I forgot what it was going to be. For listeners who don't know, I'm I'm already anticipatorily delirious because I'm going in for a medical procedure tomorrow. Well, and the tequila this morning. Yeah, well, that's that. But I, I, I've I've learned how to stabilize with that. That's fine. <laughs> Let's go back to Beto's tweet. Right, the idea. So one of my big peeves is that in America, which is a great problem to have, but it's still a problem, we only talk about poverty as a subjective matter, right? Our definition of poverty is the definition of wealth for most of human history, for most for and for most poor people around the globe. The material prosperity that your average poor person has access to is considered quite lavish by objective historical or you know uh, global standards. And so when when Beto says that that wealth has never been more concentrated today, if you have an objective understanding of of what wealth is, or even a subjective one, the idea that there that wealth is more concentrated in a few people's hands today than it was, say, at the end of the nineteenth century. Um, never mind the 17th century or the 14th century, just strikes me as ludicrous, right? Particularly if you don't think about it in financial terms, but you think about size of homes, access to plumbing, access to sufficient calories, um, access, you know, like a Mercedes in 1970, the equipment that it had and the features that it had would make it basically the lowest form of Hyundai today, if that, right? And so... If you think about wealth in terms of your access to material resources, your ability to travel, your ability to flourish, your ability to eat well and all the rest, wealth has never been less concentrated in the United States or anywhere um, than it is today. Am I wrong about that? No, I think, I think, that's, I think that's, that's broadly right. And, and I think even by Beto's own definition, I, th- I think he's wrong. I mean if, if you kind of accept the sensibilities of the left around wealth concentration – and you look at some of the statistics, you know, so the the share of wealth held by the you know top zero point one percent or something like that, you see that 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 has been going up for sure over the last several decades, no question about that. But that it it is not as high as it was a century ago. Mm-hmm. If you want to go back further than a century ago, then the you know the data are even more difficult to work with. But you know it's very hard to imagine that it's higher today than it was in the Gilded Age, and mm-hmm. and certainly you know to to your point, if you you know go back to you know, kind of feudal England or something like that, then then it looks even sillier. Yeah, I mean, I I, I had Jack fact check some stuff I found recently about. Do you trust it? For the most part, for the most part, uh, he provides his sources, so that's one of the useful things. He goes <laughs> tell where he got something from. But uh, just the number of billionaires since the 1980s is I, I don't want to get it completely wrong, but it was like doubled or or a little more than doubled or something like that, and. Even adjusting for inflation, right? I mean, we're just we're creating more billionaires, so it's not getting more concentrated. The problem is, it seems to me, is that the you know the middle. What happened was the middle got bifurcated, so the sort of the lower middle got worse off, and the upper middle moved, or and the upper part of the middle moved into the upper middle class, and so you can see some divergence there culturally and and whatnot. But the ranks of people who are actually affluent in this country have been broadening out compared to. Previous generations, or do I have that wrong? Well, I, I mean, I think I think it's even a, you know probably a rosier picture than that. You know, over the last several decades, the, the lower middle hasn't been doing as well as 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 the upper middle, and certainly not as well as as the top one percent. But the lower middle, you know, is not in some sort of a free fall or mm-hmm. or, or something like that. Um, and again, you know, it depends on you know kind of what you look at and how you measure it. And certainly, there are there are 
individuals and, and there are communities that, that have been made significantly worse off. But, you know, if you're looking at kind of broader groups of people, you know, you see you see income growth and maybe that income growth is, is not as fast as we would like. As Americans, we have very high expectations about how, you know, we should have a, you know, two or three percent increase in our in our purchasing power every year, and, and and we haven't had that. And high expectations are good, and that's and that's and that and that's part of part of kind of you know the the American culture. But you know, there's been growth, and uh, uh, you know, and that's something we should be we should be happy about. Just as an aside, so I I, I think the point that Beto makes in the thing about privilege is a different thing because I don't think the privilege necessarily comes the privilege and the wealth part don't necessarily go in tandem the way a lot of people on the left do. But we'll get to that in a little second. But there's a statistic there's a factoid ish statistic ish thing that I hear politicians throw around all the time. Uh, our friend Tim Carney uses it a lot. This this idea that the five counties or five zip codes I think it's usually the five counties around Washington DC are the wealthiest counties in the country. Mm-hmm. And this bothers me because well, it's not accurate. Because it's Go not ahead. true. I mean, that's my first complaint about it, right? It is true in the sense of the. the I admire me- your commitment to truth. The, the median income, right, is the highest on you know the highest average income because, and part of it is because you have all these defense contractors. All it, they're, they're good middle and upper middle class, yeah. government jobs, defense jobs, that kind of thing. But the idea that say I don't know Loudoun County, Virginia. Mm-hmm competes with Greenwich, Connecticut, yeah. or with the Gold Coast in Florida or parts of Southern – just strikes me as ludicrous. And yeah. yet people want to use that all the time. I'm, I'm right about that, right? Yeah, you're right about that. I mean, it, I mean the, the, the statistics is, is, is median income. Median income is the income at which half the people in the county earn less than half the people in the county earn more. And Washington has a uh, – the Washington, D.C. area has a high median income for precisely that reason. There are a lot of people who earn you know, a nice you know, low six-figure job from the federal government and a lot of two-earner couples. And so then you a get lot of two. lawyers. Now, yeah, a lot of lawyers and, 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 you know, and you get a lot of these you know, kind of you know, upper middle uh, salaries. Um, and so that pushes up pushes up the median income. But if you look at if you look at wealth, right? You know, I mean, it's just not. This is the point I was trying to get at earlier about the difference between wealth and income. People yeah. about income inequality, wealth inequality is kind of a different thing than income inequality. Sure. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. I mean, huge swaths of 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 the world have no wealth. Right. You know, and uh, you know, I'm not. I mean, I mean, you know, I think a lot of a lot of people in the United States have basically no wealth, particularly when you factor in things like uh, the uh, mortgage they owe on their house. Right. You know, if you you know if you add up their assets, you know, they own some cars, they have equity in their house, maybe they have a 401k or something like that. You know, and then you add up their debts. You know, and and for a lot of people, that's a big mortgage. A lot of those people. Uh, have have very little wealth or, or even negative wealth, but they're doing fine. Right. You know, they're earning a good salary, and their kids are going to good schools, and they have you know uh, the opportunity to earn more income uh, in later years, and they you know they're, they're they're doing fine. And so you know you gotta you know you gotta figure out what you're what you're interested in. Yeah, because I mean, this gets to the point. <coughs> I apologize to listeners because I am not being the best uh, ro- uh, uh, navigator on this. Conversation. I think you're doing great. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Not not only are you a powerful man, you're a handsome man. Um, so one of the reasons why I bring up the the, the thing about these these counties and whatnot um, around um, D.C. 
is that we tend to conflate um, this idea of that wealth and privilege, that, that privilege goes along the same sliding scale as wealth, right? And I, I'm not an idiot. Well, people, people in good faith can disagree about that. But, uh, but this, I'm not an idiot. I understand that the wealthier you get, the more influence and privilege you get, right? I mean, that's one of the nice things about having wealth is, or high income is, is the ability to solve problems that other people can't solve, right? That's why we want money. I have a lot of problems that a lot of wealth would help me solve. Yes, that's right. That's right. But the, but wealth is not the only way to attain privilege and um, access and influence in this country, right? So, there are an enormous number of people who may not be super wealthy but also have really outside influence and access. Journalists are one. Sure. Right? And that's one of the funny things is about how – Megan McArdle makes this point all the time about how people who write about economics and journalism um, tend to always define rich people as about 10 percent richer than your <laughs> average well-paid journalist, yeah. right? <laughs> and so it, it – the vision inside of Beto's tweet of this idea that opportunity should be available to everybody is one we can, I think we both broadly agree with, right? I mean, of course. It's all in the implementation. But how useful would it be to like take half of – take more of Warren Buffett's money? How does that create more opportunity for other people? Well, it would depend on what, on you, do with what you do with it. Right. But you know, it would also depend on – I think the kind of unintended consequences that would come from from doing that, you know, there's just something, you know, there there are, there are all sorts of reasons why kind of wealth taxation is problematic. Yeah, let's let's talk about a wealth tax. People want to just tax people's wealth. Sure. Uh, why shouldn't you do it? And there, I'll tell you the real reasons why we shouldn't. It's do it. incredibly <laughs> difficult to do. Right. And this is why you've seen many countries stop stop doing it. You know, we have all sorts of problems with our estate tax in the United States, and a major problem is how do you value someone's estate? You know, how do you you know, you know, figure out how much all the pieces of art costs and all the furniture costs and what the real estate, you know, costs. By cost, I mean the value of the value of the art, the value of the furniture, the value of the of the real estate. You know, you know, the value of the stock holdings, and and you know, put a number on all that. And you know, if somebody owns a business, yeah. you know, how do you how do you value? Uh, how do you calculate the value of the business? And how do you how do you know if someone will, and if someone owns Fifty businesses, because a lot of these people are are, right. are, are pretty well off uh, and have been very successful. You know, how do you value all those businesses and and and, and come to a number uh, with a wealth tax? You have to do that. So currently, you do that when somebody dies, right? You know, with a wealth tax, you have to do that every year. Yeah, and that's just that's just hard. I mean, that's hard to do, and and there's often major disputes, and you know the the person who owes the taxes and the IRS enter into some sort of protracted, you know, debate about how to solve the problem, et cetera, et cetera. So so it's very hard to implement. Um, a wealth tax is economically equivalent to a tax on the income that's generated from wealth. Um, so, you know, you can just tax that income and we have an income tax and we and we do that already. So so it, it's it seems to me a Unnecessary, and, and really, the you know the, the major point of it is signaling, as it's been uh, as it's been advanced by Elizabeth Warren and, and and some others in the Democratic Party. It would raise very little money, and it would tax a very small number of people. 
And I have enormous problems with that. You know, the government should not go after, you know, a few thousand people or, you know, 50,000 people or whatever it is and just try and confiscate, you know, their, you know, just, you know, to target them, uh, you know, as a way of demonstrating that we, you know, don't like rich people. I mean, that right. just, that's just, that's just deeply offensive to me. You know, they, you know, what's wrong with the way they made their money? Right. Right. Why, why, why should they receive, uh, some sort of punitive tax. Um, well, that's the thing uh, about it, right? Is is that is it sort of a, for me? Is it, I mean, I take your point. I think it's a very good one about how difficult it would be to operationalize and implement something like this, right? Yeah. I mean, you just think about not just let's just say that rich, like all the billionaires would be happy to comply. It would still be difficult, but they're not going to be happy to comply. Yeah. So they're they're going to hide stuff and they're going to scatter and they're, they're, they're going to move. Yeah, and they're going to move, right? And <laughs> But but there's, so I agree with all that. But it's also the key word that you had there was it's, it's literally punitive, yeah. right? And these these people pay have already paid taxes on all at some point in this chain, maybe several times, depending on how these you know which taxes you're talking about. They've already paid taxes on the economic activity that we're talking about. This is just sort of a you're in the end zone. The play is over. We're going to tackle you anyway, kind of move, right? Yeah. Well, and, and even and even the the double taxation aside, I think it, it's still objectionable. I agree. You know, I agree. Um, uh, you know, so so even if we weren't doing a wealth tax, but we were doing some sort of a you know ninety percent income tax rate on incomes above you know ten million dollars or something like that, or incomes above fifty million dollars, you know, some 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 range of income where you're really targeting. You know, twenty five thousand or seventy five thousand people or something like that. You know, there's just—I mean—that's that just—that just strikes me as a as a as a wildly inappropriate use of government power. That strikes me as 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 the mob using government to go after a small number of people because there's something about those people they don't like. Right. And unless we can come up with a uh, reasonable explanation for. You know why you know those people made their money in some way we don't like, or you know you know they're really doing some sort of egregious social harm and that needs to be corrected you know then it just it just it just strikes me as 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 deeply objectionable to 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 target to target those people in that way using using the tax code but also isn't it the case you know like the Medicare for all the price tag was like over ten years like thirty two trillion dollars or something like I mean, yeah I mean, it's hard to calculate but yeah i understand it's okay. very expensive plus or minus 10 percent <laughs> um, or 100 percent yeah the green or 100 <laughs> yeah. right and the green new deal also again impossible to because it has medicare for all in it yeah. right so yeah, it's yeah. like medicare for all plus a lot of dead cows mm-hmm. right so you could confiscate i believe all of the wealth of the 0.1 percent and it wouldn't get you close to paying for that not just tax a little extra, but like literally you could – like the Bolsheviks, store, you know, in the November Revolution, you could just take all of their stuff, expropriate it, and it still wouldn't get you very far. And so my point is, isn't part of the problem that we have allowed the American public, generally speaking, to think that the the super rich are – an endless piggy bank that can actually pay for everything. And I mean, you hear all this stuff about fair share, right? And if you look at the share of federal income taxes that are paid for by the top 5%, it's like almost all of it, right? And so 
I mean, half the people, half half the households in America don't pay federal right. income tax, which is not the same thing as them not paying taxes. They pay other taxes. This is a they problem that a lot of people on the right got into in the last ten years yeah. about saying that they're all cheats and yeah, they, yeah, they pay payroll taxes right. and they pay sales taxes, but they don't pay federal income taxes. And so, but my point is, is that at the end of the day, you can't just keep assuming that the the rich, um, however you want to define them, the point one percent, the one percent, the point the five percent, they can't pay for everything. You know, you need to tax the middle class if you are going to pay for new entitlements or all this kind of thing. And yet there's this idea out there that the American people – that the middle class is wildly overtaxed and that the rich are wildly undertaxed. And I get that when you look how the rich live. That's fine. But as an economic matter – don't you need much broader base for an income tax to, if you're going to use that to pay for a lot of this stuff? Yeah, I mean, I I think I think the broader point about about the American uh, public being sold a bill of goods about the the capabilities of of the rich to finance things is absolutely right. You know, one of the most striking things about the debate that we've been having about about not just tax policy but public policy generally over the last you know say 15 years or so is that we've kind of sneakily defined. The middle class to be everybody below the top one or two percent, right? And maybe sometimes we talk about the poor, you know. So say it's everybody from the you know fifteenth percentile up to the ninety eighth percentile. And in terms of lifestyle on a global metric, there's a little truth to it, right? I mean, it's a, this is a very middle class country in terms of how people live. Yeah, but if you're, but if, but if, if, if the if the ninety if the ninety seventh percentile person. Is not upper income, or right. <laughs> you know, or even you know, high income. Right. Then, then you know, the, the, there's just not a lot of places to go for tax revenue. If you, you know, so income inequality went up a lot in the '80s, a lot in the '90s. If you look at the kind of excess gains enjoyed by the top one percent, so you know, the top one percent, you know, captured some share of income in 1979, and that share grew and grew and grew. If you kept that share the same. Starting in 1979, and calculated it, uh, and calculated the excess gains over the following three decades. You could give uh, every household in America a one-time payment of five thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars, something like that. Uh, you know, I mean, I would, if you wanted to give me a one-time payment of ten thousand dollars, I would, I would happily take it. But you know, that's not going to transform life for that's one time. I mean, right. that's not going to transform life for people. If instead you look at the Earnings gap between a two earner couple who went to college and a two earner couple who went to high school. That's closer to thirty thousand dollars mm-hmm. per year, mm-hmm. and that's every year over uh, a working life. And so, you know, I think one of the real problems with the way that we talk about income inequality and this uh, focus on the one percent and on the point you made. One of the problems uh, related to the point you made that we really tend to just you know, treat the the riches as as these people who can solve all our problems is that it distracts the public conversation and distracts public policy from the things that would actually help right. lower income people to do better, acquire skills, you know, work hard in the labor market, and we send signals through the way we talk about it to those people that they are disempowered and that. You know, there are these rich people out there and they're around on their yachts and, you know, they're the ones with all the resources. And, you know, if you are, uh, you know, high school educated person, there's just nothing you can do. You know, you're not one of those people. 
And that's just factually incorrect. Right. If you, you know, get more skills and, and work harder and, uh, you know, gain more experience in the labor market, you're going to do better. You're going to do better doing those things than you would do if we did go scoop all the money right. that the top 1% have made and redistribute it to everybody else. And you would be forgiven for not knowing that right. because none of our political leaders talk that way. Yeah, but isn't there also – I mean – I'm not calling you out per se. Uh, You're welcome to. Uh, no, but th- this is a – I mean I talk about this a little bit in my book and this is something that Pascal Gobri and Tyler Cowen and Megan McCarthy, a bunch of people have talked about this a few years ago about how the premium on – in terms of your lifetime earnings, the premium on getting married, right, sort of the success sequence stuff, getting married, staying married, getting married – before you have kids, all the rest, that is, is for the average American probably greater than going to colleges. That particularly for men, if you get married, I'm not saying that you shouldn't go to college, but I'm saying that when you get married, men tend to be much more productive, right? It's a, partly an evolutionary biology kind of thing, right? You know, we just, as, as I think you know, we tend to do what our wives tell us to do. And I think one – I have this personal theory about it is that one of the things – one of the reasons why men become more productive is – Because we're terrified of our wives. We're terrified of our wives because uh, – but also being a mom and taking care of a kid is so much unbelievable work, right? And fathers tend to be kind of terrified of it. And but they feel guilty about because the children don't like us. They don't like us nearly as much. There's all sorts of reasons for it, right? And so one of the only forms of activity that you get a pass from your wife to do when you have young children in the house is making money, right? <laughs> is working. And so it's, it's yes, we want to be a provider. Well, I want to bring back the biggest piece of mastodon for my cave people and all that. That's part of it. But it's also just like, why are you leaving the house? Well, I'm going to go to have a couple of beers with my friends. No, you're not. You know, why are you leaving the house? I am going to provide for my family by working even harder and going to the office on a Saturday. Okay, right? And anyway, the point is, is that there's a bigger premium in terms of your earning potential from getting married and from sharing income and sharing, dividing labor and all that kind of stuff as there's going to college. But economists will never talk about that to their students because that's judging. Well, they had a really hard time getting girls to like them. Yeah, that's also That's the other problem, right? <laughs> so, but it's judgy. It's bourgeois. It's saying that there's a single f- f- form of family organization that is superior to other forms of family organization. It gets you into all sorts of like weird cultural issues. Remember about two years ago at, Penn's, at University of Pennsylvania or Penn State, they had the Two professors wrote an op-ed saying that bourgeois values are actually are really, really good for your lifetime economic, you know, potential in terms of just delayed gratification, hard work, thrift. You know, these things are probably you know are really valuable, and you know the the they're almost made they're almost paraded around the quad and in dunce caps and set aflame for their, for daring to say that bourgeois values are good values. Economists are part of the problem in this, is that they like to talk about the things that can measure. They like to think about the things that seem value-free, and they don't really take the lead on any – I'm not saying – and it's not just economists. It's social scientists. It's academia. It's all sorts of people. But they don't take the lead on actually just sort of saying, yeah, you know, it's actually true that like old-fashioned values are actually in your economic self-interest too. I think – Defend your – your creed, your people. <laughs> well, I think that that's right. 
Um, I like how nervous you are about it. Though. <laughs> <laughs> by that I mean, I think that I think that you are you are right that uh, you know that 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 household income goes up when you get married, and mm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't. I don't. I actually don't know uh, if the uh, effect of being married on an individual's mm-hmm. income is, or an individual's wages, is larger than than uh, the effect of going to college. I would be surprised if that were right. The effect of getting married on household on total household income is significant because mm-hmm. you know you're getting you know or it can be significant because right. you know particularly if both people if both people work. I think the 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 broader the broader question. I'll show you fam- the stuff I'm referring to later, and we can clarify it. But and I'll put it up in the show notes. But it doesn't have to be bigger than college to still be worth talking about. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. There's no question about that. Um, I think that that you know my perception is that over the past several years, uh, economics and social science in general have become more comfortable talking about the importance of family structure, and and that's also true on the on the left you know you've i've seen uh, at least among kind of center left intellectuals and social scientists a real evolution um you know going from you know we shouldn't talk about family structure and that's a personal choice et cetera et cetera to uh well obviously the evidence shows that stability in the household really matters for kids to well, obviously, the evidence shows that stability with two adults in the household really matters for kids. To uh, boy, if those two adults are married, then that household's a lot more stable, mm-hmm. and 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 marriage and marriage, uh, you know, has has really done has really done something there. And that's been a that's been a you know I don't think that's you know if you go further out on the left, I think there's still you know that's still extremely taboo. But in in kind of the center left world, you know that that evolution really does seem to be proceeding. I think part of the part of the challenge is that uh, we know how to get people more skills, particularly people who are who are younger in life. But there, we have not been very successful at encouraging people to get married, and you know that does kind of create a a, a dynamic where. You know, when people are, are are trying to figure out what to do in order to uh, help low income people have upward mobility, there's a lot of focus on more skills and a lot of focus on on employment, um, and there's less focus on marriage because and church right. and church because we don't know, you know, we don't know how to how to do that. And there are even some there's some very troubling signs that that uh you know it, it'll be even harder to do than, than we've thought so there was a, a recent study that looked at an unexpected uh fracking boom and you know all of a sudden there's this fracking boom and then you know people's incomes go way up because there are all these jobs there you know and and the men didn't get married uh even though their income went up um cuz you know for a long time people thought you know, well, women don't want to marry these guys because there are more opportunities for women than there used to be, and these guys are deadbeats. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, so this so this paper kind of cleverly said, okay, well, let's look at a situation where a bunch of guys really had a really became a lot more marriageable, mm-hmm. and, and you know, women didn't uh, didn't want to marry them. This is one study; it's not dispositive, yeah. but I think that that drives I think that drives that drives a lot of it mm-hmm. uh, is is just that there's no real obvious way to to achieve anything on that front. Yeah, but I mean, I get that. 
but it's also incumbent upon the intellectual classes, you know, you guys, not 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 what I do, to just simply describe reality properly, right? Oh, sure, of course. You know, yeah. and there is a sort of desire not to, you know, it's like a Monty Python skit, don't mention the war. You know? <laughs> um, there's like this huge, I mean, this is sort of a big point of, you know, Tim Carney's stuff about how church in particular is so important to a lot of civil society marriages too and there are a lot of intellectuals who just and a lot of social scientists who find that stuff icky and or not their lane and so they're just not going to talk about it and my problem is is that that lane has to curve around these giant human truths about human nature and you know I mean I understand that basically no one no one is ever the only person who's ever actually boiled human beings down to homo economicus were actually marxists like and <laughs> um but uh there is this vast swamp. and even they didn't really do it <laughs> no even they, or they did it really badly yeah, you know? yeah. um all right so switching gears so i want to get back on this concentration of wealth so let me, let me let me just agree with you that i think that that there there needs to be more discussion about the importance of family structure and and the the importance of marriage and the importance of providing a stable environment for kids and the the importance of of of, of providing structure for, in the lives of adults as well and 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 that that you know that that produces uh, or at least is correlated with much better outcomes. Right. I mean, we're not going to be able to make capitalism less that much less churny and chaotic, but if you make the other harbors of human life more stable, the churn in the economy bothers you less, mm -hmm. right? Sure. Uh, and you're able to deal with it better. Right. You have you have social resources that just, you know, oh, yeah, I'm switching jobs again. Oh, mm -hmm. that's great. I'll see you at church on Tuesday, you yeah. know, whatever, that kind of thing. But if you don't have those other sort of niches in the ecosystem of life and all of your meaning comes from your job and then you lose your job, that's terrifying, mm -hmm. right? So I want to get back on this, um, the concentration of wealth thing, because I feel like I haven't cracked the nut. The years ago, you know, you you know how in development economics there's this thing called, um, you know, the natural resources curse or the oil curse, and it basically boils down to how um, there's this thing Kuznets curve or whatever, and it, it basically shows that once you get purchasing power parity above like six thousand dollars or something like that, and you transition to democracy, you never go back because wealthy countries want democracy. The classic story of where we get democracy from is the um, essentially sort of the French and American revolutions where the rising bourgeois middle class, which is not aristocratic, they're the ones being taxed out the yin-yang. Yin-yang is a technical economics term. And they demand rights and, and representation for their money. And that's how you get the emergence of sort of middle class sort of contractual rights theory stuff. And the one exception to this trend are countries that are really, really rich in natural resources because what they end up doing is they don't – the rulers don't need the middle class for their money. The middle class stays sort of clients or subjects because they're getting money out of the ground essentially basically with oil. Years ago, I wrote a column thinking – talking about how that's how we're treating billionaires is that we see them as a bottomless natural resource and therefore, we don't need to tax the middle class. Therefore, we don't need to act. You know, people keep talking about how we need this sense of. This is my this is my core problem with with the Beto tweet. 
Um, although he did inspire me since I'm going in for a colonoscopy tomorrow. I'm thinking I'm going to Instagram or live live stream it, just like Beto did. Um, <laughs> you can get a video of it. Uh, but um, uh, um, this idea that we're all together going to ransack the mansions of the one percenters is so Bolshevik or so so self-contradictory, right? We all have to act as one nation, one people, and therefore – um, grab your pitchforks and your tor- torches, and let's bre- you know let's let's abscond with the wealth of the people in the nice houses, and um, that mindset is the mindset you get when the middle class doesn't feel economically that it has skin in the game sufficiently to understand. You know, it's like it's it's this idea that they're just a natural resource. Billionaires are this bottomless, endless, renewable resource like oil on the ground. We can rely on them to fix everything and we don't feel like we um that we're taxed enough, right? We don't we're we only care about our entitlement and one of our entitlements is their their wealth. That is really unhealthy for a democracy, that kind of thinking, right? As Kevin Williamson put it a little while ago, he says whenever you th- Whenever you think you can achieve your optimal policy positions or your optimal policy goals is by eradicating a certain class of people, um, you've kind of wandered into a bad place because there was that bad piece in the New York Times about getting rid of billionaires. Mm-hmm. Sure. And so anyway, that's that's sort of what I've been trying to get at is this idea that in a large middle class society where most of the money is embedded in the middle class, don't you get better politics and policies when – you have you have more buy-in across the economic spectrum, and not just simply trying to soak the people at the top. Yeah, I think you do, and I, and I think it points to one of the one of the puzzles that we've that that we've seen, and it's part of why I I said that I'm not super clear on whether people actually care about income inequality at the beginning. Uh, you know, income inequality really increased a lot in the 80s and 90s. Nobody talked about it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a subject. You know, there weren't there weren't Occupy Wall Streets, and you know there weren't you know let's get rid of billionaires, and 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 you know there wasn't an entire political party organized around around uh, uh, you know sharpening the pitchforks and and going after these people. For the last decade or so, income inequality has actually stabilized. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not growing, or or even more conservatively, it's it's growing very very slowly and much more slowly than it used to. By some measures, income inequality has actually gone down over the last decade, and yet you know the fever pitch is still is still kind of there and is illustrated by the twenty twenty Democratic presidential candidates. So, how do you explain that? I mean, I think one one way to explain it is to say that that Changes in inequality don't matter. It's the level of inequality, and we still have a lot of inequality. That that may be right, but another way to explain it is that as long as people are are feel like they're getting ahead, mm-hmm. then they care a whole lot less about whether or not uh, the rich are getting ahead at a faster rate. And uh, you know, so I think the the question for for public policy and for elected leaders is, you know, if you think that 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 all this populist frustration um, that's manifesting itself, you know, that Beto's reacting to, and, the, and, the, and that the other candidates are reacting to, if you think that's bad, bad for democracy, and and bad for those people, and and bad for our our uh, life together, which I certainly do, then how do you alleviate that? Um, if it's actually you know driven by this gap, 
then you know maybe you maybe you want to go Bolshevik and and and, and ransack the mansions. But it, instead, if if the underlying driver is the sense that people have that they're not getting ahead or not getting ahead fast enough or concern about their future or concern about their children's future, then that admits an entirely different response. It admits a different policy response. It admits a different rhetorical response. Uh, it admits a different posture toward the issue. And, you know, my big concern is 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 that, you know, instead of elevating the conversation and and uh, trying to – and our leaders trying to lead people toward a better outcome for themselves and for our country as a whole, they're just indulging this frustration. And and that I think ends up being bad for everybody. Yeah. So two quick things uh, – or one quick thing and one longer thing because uh, I'm finally, as we're closing in on the end of this podcast, realizing the stuff that I – want to have this podcast be about and so Jack will just have to like play it backwards or something anyway um, I'm a you know I've become more and more of a devotee or a dabbler in um, all this evolutionary psychology stuff right and Lita Cosmides makes this point she's one of the founders of the field that we are hardwired to dislike strangers but that's not important to this point Within the tribe, right, we have – and hardwire is the wrong word. We're, we have instincts um, or t- uh, taste buds, psychological taste buds for certain reactions. And we are wired not to like people who don't pull their fair share, right, slackers. Right? When you have a small band on the Serengeti, everyone's got to be contributing. You can't just be sitting there like Rousseau's noble savage on a rock reading while everyone else is freaking fighting saber-toothed tar- tigers and picking – you know, berries, whatever. Um, you got to do your fair share. So we don't like those types of people, or we're inclined to. But we also don't like people who take more than their fair share. Mm-hmm. And so in Republican and conservative rhetoric for a long time, from just purely through the psychological perspective, all the talk about welfare queens and, and, and deadbeat dads and all of this kind of stuff. Not to say there aren't real policy issues there, but it pinged that part of our brand. That these guys are just on welfare. They got their Obama phones, yada, yada, yada. That rhetoric has a long history on the right, for good or for ill. The rhetoric that, oh, it's just the, the evil globalists and billionaires exploiting us and taking their more than their fair share, that's sort of the rhetoric of the left. I think these are one of the things that sort of are part of the sort of landscape that define right and left in lots of parts of the world. Mm-hmm. There's that. You can respond to that if you want. But then the second point, which is what I was trying to get to with this privilege thing, is that I have this theory that sort of goes back to Hofstetter and some of these guys, that the that part of what explains the obsession with stati- with with income inequality is what Richard Hofstetter would probably call status class anxiety. Mm-hmm. And what you get are tend to be overeducated young and middle aged people who knew a lot of these millionaires and billionaires in college and thought they were kind of dumbasses because they were just taking math and, and business courses, and they weren't reading Foucault and Proust, right? And so they both leave college, maybe some, maybe both with college debts, and some go off to teach high school, which I think is a noble thing, right? Or to work in social services or in whatever, or government union jobs. And they look at these people that they knew, and they're like, "My God, have you seen their Facebook page? They just bought a boat," and it enrages them. 
because they made different choices and they think it's unfair that they're, quote unquote, being penalized for their choices. And I always remember during the height of the Occupy Wall Street stuff, and maybe we can find the piece for the for the uh, show notes, there was, a, there was an article in The Nation, and I don't want to... It sounds like I'm exaggerating, so I don't. I, I, this is basically how I remember it, but maybe I'm, I'm not doing it justice, or maybe I'm going too far. But there was a piece in there profiling this guy who quit his very well-paying teaching job because the New York public city school system rewards you to pursue graduate degrees. So he quit his job where he essentially had tenure, uh, making good money, to go get a master's in puppetry. <laughs> and then discovered that there were no commensurately superior paying jobs than the one he had before in puppetry. And he was very, very angry about this. And so he was that part of Occupy Wall Street. And I think there's a, I mean, student, the level of student debt and the racket that you have with higher education in general, I think are legitimate issues to be pissed off about. But I think part of it is just this, you have this mass, new, what Schumpeter called new class, highly educated people who are antagonistic towards capitalism, who are antagonistic towards the traditional bourgeois values. And they see these people who are getting ahead with capitalism, bourgeois values, and they resent it. And, um, and so really it's not so much, and, and they have an enormous, this is the point I was trying to get at, they have an enormous amount of power in our system. I mean, not just the Occupy Wall Street people. But bureaucrats, government unions, teachers unions, education schools, all the rest. Labor they, unions. Labor unions. They don't make enormous amounts of money per se. They make fine money. But they have outside cultural influence. I mean the, the Hollywood types make a lot of money, but their cultural influence is even greater than the money they make. There are lots of people who are millionaires and billionaires in this country who don't have nearly the cultural power that George Clooney does. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's this asymmetry about how we talk about this stuff. There's this deep and abiding resentment about – how people who majored in poetry or in social work and have and maybe just as smart as Warren Buffett, but they made choices and they think that there shouldn't be such a different premium on the choices that they make. Does that make sense to you? It does, and I, and I think that's certainly part of it. I mean, I think I think there's just a lot of resentment all around. You know, so a lot of the a lot of the resentment I think comes from that dynamic. I think a lot of the resentment comes from. Uh, people who are more working class voters who resent the social safety net benefits that people who are just a little just bit below lower them, income right. them get. Right. Uh, but they also resent how at every Oscars there's someone peeing on them from a great height, right? Sure. That's what absolutely. Trump tapped into. Absolutely, 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 absolutely. That's absolutely right. Um, and so there's just this big kind of stew of resentment. Yeah. Um, and – uh, Meanwhile, we're just happy, well-adjusted people with not a bone of resentment in us. Well, we had the tequila this morning. That's right. Yeah, um, uh, you know, and so I think the question for policy and for and for leaders is how do you, you know, do you think that's bad? And if you do, how do you kind of you know move it forward and make it better? And you know the way you know the way to do that is not to be punitive toward a small group of people. The way to you know and, and everybody pile on. The way to do it is to expand opportunity and, and, and upward mobility for, for everybody else. I mean, I, I do think you – something that I didn't make explicit but that, but, but that I've, I've alluded to several times is this notion of do people really care about inequality, number one, and number two, how did the rich make their money? Mm -hmm. And I do think it's interesting that you know, no one is up in arms about J.K. Rowling's billions of dollars. And I don't even think anybody's really up in arms about Bill Gates. 
mm-hmm. you know, billion, you know, who I think is still the richest man in the world, or maybe Jeff Bezos may have eclipsed that. I think Bezos. Beat them. Um, they don't like Bezos. Uh, they don't like they don't they don't like they they, they don't like Bezos uh, because they don't like Amazon for some reason. Even though just a few years ago they loved Amazon, yeah. so it's hard to it's hard to understand them. But I think. I think that there is – this gets to the problem. This gets to the, the – the, this helps illuminate the core question of whether inequality is, is bad uh, per se and whether today's inequality is troubling per se. People are OK with Oprah. People are OK with J.K. Rowling. Right. People are OK with Bill Gates. People seem to be OK with athletes and movie stars. And, Bruce Springsteen you know, is a wealthy man. People, people, Bruce Sorry, Springsteen I don't, is a I don't... very, very wealthy man. He's earned every penny. Um, <laughs> a lot of it through innate ability, but also he's you know for listeners that don't know, works very is hard. A crazy Springsteen. <laughs> um, uh, but then there seems to be this this group of people in finance who, on the political left, mm-hmm. uh, are, you know, are really, really, really unpopular. Right. And I think a lot of that probably stemmed from the financial crisis in the sense that large swaths of of, of the American people were made much, much, much worse off, and really suffered enormously from the. Financial crisis in the Great Recession, but that but that people on Wall Street really did not, um, at least at least nearly to the same degree. And there's a lot of frustration with that. And so, do we not like inequality, or do we not like the aftermath of the financial crisis and how people in finance fared in the aftermath of the crisis relative to how people on Main Street fared? Do there's we- also a lot of anthropomorphization there, right? Because people think that like. Goldman Sachs got off okay. That doesn't mean that like every human being at Goldman Sachs got off. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. That's right? exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. But do we really care about inequality, or do we care about people who, uh, you know, do we care? Do we not like rich people, or do we not like rich people who earn their money in a way that we we don't really yeah. like as much? I mean, you know, and I think I think unpacking some of that would be helpful. Um, uh, but you know, the most helpful thing to do would be to not. Uh, sharpen the pitchforks for any group of Americans, right. whether they're the rich or the poor or the middle class or or whoever, and to think about how we can how we can move the ball forward for everybody. Okay, so I agree with that. That's a nice place to end, but we're not going to quite end it there because there's one meta thing I want to ask you about. Okay, so my dad, when he used to try to explain capitalism to me in the free market, he always used to say there is nothing inherent to capitalism that says everyone can't be at least a millionaire. Doesn't mean everyone will have will have equal wealth, but there's there's nothing inherent in capitalism that says you have to have poor people. Except in the subjective sense, right? This bothered me for years and years and years because it just didn't seem intuitively right to me, but I never really could articulate why I thought it was wrong. I've come around to thinking it's right if you look at it in the sense that if you describe the way John D Rockefeller lived, with the exception of the size of his home, right, and maybe some jewelry, that kind of stuff, the, a person today living on $250,000 a year, which again is a big income depending on where you live in the United States, or even $150,000 a year, in many respects is richer than John D. Rockefeller was 100 years ago. In basically every important respect. Yeah, and every re- important respect. I mean, there's some aesthetic respects, right? I mean, you're not going to have as nice a library, right? I mean, that, and that's cool. Libraries are yeah. cool. But, but you have, you have you know, access to a lot more books. Yeah, exactly. You have access to a lot more books. You have access to these things called antibiotics, which mm-hmm. are kind of awesome, right? You have better dentistry. You have... Um, air conditioning. Air conditioning, better choice in food, probably. Um, certainly diversity of food, mm-hmm. uh, ease of travel, all of these kinds of things. But we, it would, if I say to somebody, oh, yeah, you know, that guy, he's a pretty successful, you know, plumber, and 
he's richer than John D. Rockefeller, people look at me like I'm that guano crazy. Mm-hmm. And this is the point I was trying to get at about this. See, eventually I figure out what I wanted to talk about today. Um, the difference between subjective and objective notions of poverty and wealth. Subjectively, Bill Gates is a lot richer than me, and he always will be, and that's fine. That doesn't mean I'm poor. Mm-hmm. And and no amount of wealth that Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates can accumulate will make me any poorer. Mm-hmm. But there is this deep thing in our brains that thinks that there's a zero-sum thing, mm-hmm. that if the rich are getting richer, that must mean – and this goes back to Aristotle. I mean, lots of the ancients thought this was true, that there was a zero-sum quality to the accumulation of money, that if in a trade one person wins, another person loses – and we do such a crappy job of explaining to people how markets and capitalism are non-zero sum mm-hmm. and that they create winners on all sides. And the thing that bothers me about the Beto tweet and all that is that it plays into that – those assumptions. And our side is not great at sort of pushing back on it and because journalists tend to be of the same sort of status class anxiety – realm that I was talking about earlier, they just let that stuff go by unchallenged. Mm-hmm. While conservative platitudes, some of which have real problems, always get challenged. Anyway, I'm done with my rant, but that's sort of the point I want to get out there. You have you have the floor to close us out. I agree. I mean, I think it's hard. You know, measuring poverty and thinking about poverty is hard because you have to think about you know what is that what does it mean to be poor and a very reasonable definition as recently as as when president johnson launched the war on poverty was you know do you have adequate nutrition right and there were literally people who were who were starving in the united states all over all over the south and 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 and, and you Appalachia. Know. yeah sure yeah yeah, yeah. you know today uh, too many calories for low income americans is 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 actually a major a major health problem you know so do you want to pick a a standard and then keep that standard constant? You know, so adequate nutrition or or uh, what share of your budget do you spend on food or you know something like that over time, and then measure poverty that way? Or do you want to look at something that's that's more you know more uh, more relative um, and that and that has more of the flavor of inequality? I think you probably want to do both, but I think you need to keep in you need to keep in mind. Exactly the kinds of comparisons you're yeah. you're talking about, you know, and uh, uh, you want to you want to you want to be able to say, okay, okay, you know, there there you know wasn't modern medicine in the year 1600, and so it, it doesn't make sense to say access to to medical care means you're rich, and therefore we've eliminated poverty. Uh, so you want to kind of update that threshold, but you don't want to slip into this situation where you're you're simply saying that the bottom third of households are always poor mm-hmm. um, because the word poverty is 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 pretty loaded, and you know that's part of what I think makes this makes this complicated. Yeah, I mean that's the genius of the one percent model is, is that it's 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 just a mathematical construct that can't go away. You yeah, know? that's um, exactly right. Well, Michael, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Always fun. I promise next time I'll have I'll try to have my ideas. Thought through at the beginning rather than the end of the podcast. I think you've done great. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate it. We'll have you on again soon. Thanks. All right. So Michael Strain has left the building. I again, I, I sincerely apologize to listeners that I was sort of uh, groping like Joe Biden at a rope line, trying to figure out what I wanted to ask. But I think towards the end, it kind of picked up and got interesting, or at least my brain started to work. What would you make of all that, Jack? What did you make of all of that? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I've just been I've been so compliant in uh, always responding 
with actual thoughts to your question. This time I decided to turn it back. I understand. Um, no, I thought it was good. I thought I, I wish I had, um, again, as I said, prepped a little more. We have all of that data that you laboriously worked on um, at the end of um, Suicide of the West that charts all the ways in which the average person today is richer than almost anybody who lived before them. Um, it would have been good to get into all that. Also would have been good to get into this other point that I've written and talked about a bunch. This idea that, well, you know, part of the problem with this idea that wealth is so concentrated um, is that people don't actually understand how much, you know, what what, what they call Schumpeter's Gale, right? The creative destruction. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that. Um, and um, I actually did that video about um, Blade Runner and creative destruction, remember? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe we should link to that. You know, if you go back and you look at the number of corporations on the Fortune 500 list or the Forbes 400, whatever the list is, those top lists, within 30 years, most of them fall away. And uh, the number of families that are on the richest families list falls away very quickly. We don't have a huge estate tax here. I mean, we have a, It's significant, and I, I think it should be less. But generally speaking, intergenerational wealth wears away over time. And, you know, I remember I wrote a big piece about this when I did that, that omnibus review of Piketty, of the Piketty book for commentary. The Vanderbilts, you know, for a while, Vanderbilt was like Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates combined in his glory days. By the 1960s, there was not a millionaire left in the Vanderbilt family. And then Gloria Vanderbilt came along as an entrepreneur and rebuilt some personal wealth for her. But those, that wealth, wealth tends to, partly because people have kids and then the kids split it up, partly because they have kids who don't know how to run businesses, so they run businesses into the ground, uh, partly because they have kids who care more about being, being rich than acquiring wealth. I mean, there are all sorts of reasons for it, but there's this idea that Hollywood and a lot of people perpetuate that America is like an aristocratic country where you have generation after generation of entrenched wealth, and the data just simply don't support that. And even, you know, uh, the the whole idea of the robber baron, which I've written about a lot, was based in the sort of European notion of how wealth works and how rich people work, and it was always sort of left-wing propaganda. Um, so we didn't get into some of that, which I would have liked, but, you know, Michael has a good way of not being you know, hyperbolic on either side of these kinds of questions and, and lends a certain amount of sobriety to them, despite the tequila. Um, yeah, that was impressive. Um, I mean, you should, you should see him talk sober. It's pretty impressive. I mean, it's <laughs> but um, anyway, that's sort of what was going through my head. It was, it was mostly me just sort of thinking about the things that I was trying to remember that I wanted to talk about and f failing to do so. Uh, we cut out the moment of anguish where I just curled on the floor in a fetal position and cried for about 10 minutes while I tried to get my brain to work. But Yeah, that'll end up in the sequel to episode 11. Yeah, probably. Um, so, all right, so we're going to sort of wrap this up because there's just an enormous amount of stuff on my plate. Alas, that's a figurative expression, not a literal one because I literally am not allowed to eat anymore today. Um, but um, I recorded a new episode of Glop recently with just with Rob Long. Glow. It was glow. Um, because Pod was off. John Podhoritz was off on vacation. and uh, Or exile. Well, we'll see. I mean, Rob and I, because we like 
torturing John, talked a great deal about whether or not we should just cut John from the Glop podcast on air or on the show. And um, we're just waiting for the moment when Pod actually listens to it and, and loses his mind in rage. And I'll, I'm, I will get a text from him the moment he gets to this part of this podcast. Um, but we'll... and That's when uh, Pon Judd Horitz on Twitter will start angrily tweeting at you. That's right. Oh, so and oh, that's right. Because Pod has left Twitter again, and um, you know he'll be back. But we we talked about that a lot on Glop as well because we like talking about Pod in, in absentia. Um, Pod is just a just a, a movable feast of humanity in so many ways. Um, so the oh, that's the other that's that reminds me the other exciting thing that we need to talk about at least for a minute and to sort of telegraph to reader to listeners that this is coming is. Uh, Jack, you're going to sit in for me for a podcast and actually host an episode of The Remnant. Yep. <laughs> um, don't 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 be too blown away with the august responsibility. So to ha, you like that? You like ah, that? That was good. Yeah. So the reason I said august responsibility is well, a because it is. It's huge. It's 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 mammoth. It's um, um, it's Roman and it's spectacle. But uh, uh, Barry Strauss, who is a fantastic historian of ancient Rome um, and the Roman Empire, who I met a couple times, but most recently he was my host for a speech at Cornell. And um, and I'm a fan of his. And I recently read over Christmas break, I read his Spartacus War book, um, has a new book out called Ten Caesars. And he's going to be in town. And I really, 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 really wanted to have him on the podcast. And I promised him I would. And then it turned out that this... The same day he's going to be around is the day um, I'm having this medical procedure that I cannot move. So uh, Jack, in a um, in almost a Cincinnatus level of self-sacrifice. How fitting. Um, That's where I'm from. Exactly. Um, decided that he would uh, – asked if he, it would be okay if he interviewed him for the podcast. And I think it's a great idea. Um, you're kind of a um, – ancient Rome buff to begin with, right? Yeah, I don't know if I'd call myself a buff, but I did. So I took four years of Latin in high school, one year of it in college, um, read probably about half of the Aeneid in the original Latin and the rest in English. Uh, I've been to Italy once and to Greece once. Yeah, so I guess I have some background in this area. I'm not I'm not unqualified to speak with someone knowledgeable on this topic. Yeah. Um, well, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, one thing I want you to ask him about is... Um, what have the Romans ever done for us? <laughs> no, but if you if you don't end up playing that clip at some point, I think the podcast will be a failure. So one of the things that kind of fascinates me is we talk we we, we tend to talk about classic ancient Re- Greece and ancient Rome as if there was some sort of like serious rule of law, right? Because there there are these pretenses of it in terms of you know republic and a senate and all of these kinds of things, and we have we are. We have lots of Roman law that has been handed down to us in one way or another. But one of the things that I sort of find fascinating, and I'm not saying that's not true. I'm just saying that one of the things that's been given short shrift in the popular culture and certainly in intellectual circles is the way that ancient Rome was really essentially governed by a bunch of competing families, right? And that we don't talk enough about how that it was was very much, I mean, call it like the mafia is kind of wrong, but not entirely wrong that the, the these houses these aristocratic families that traded power as elites 
Um, and so, and the reason I'm interested in it is in partly because of that stuff I've written from, you know, about uh, the Godfather, you know, and all of that. But I think that there's just, um, um, we tend to not recognize how much of ancient Rome was a contest between essentially different aristocratic power centers. So we, 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 we elevate it too much as a sort of a place where the, the individual could rise or fall. And I, I just think, anyway, I find that stuff really interesting. How's the book so far? It is bearing out that point to a considerable extent. Oh, there, really? Yeah. Okay. Um, so it is something that I would definitely consider asking. And other than that, uh, oh, we also have the, um, we have to figure out whether we're going to use it. We have the, do we have the audio from my debate slash discussion with, with Rich? Oh, I haven't procured that yet, but it's probably procurable. Okay. I mean, it, uh, it, it might be in a pinch a fun thing to do as, as sort of a podcast extra. Um, since David and I talk about it, uh, talked about it in that most recent episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and other than that, I guess we're sort of done for the day. Uh, Jack is being very Jeb Bush like today in his low energyness, which is saying something. So, uh, other than Please, that, please, I just use my energy elsewhere. I understand. Uh, uh, Please keep the reviews coming. Please uh, uh, download us on iTunes. Give us a good review. Give us some five-star action, some sweet, sweet five-star action. And That's uh, not a euphemism. Um, At least if it is, I'm not aware of it. Uh, listeners are free to use it as a euphemism as they, see, as they wish. I just don't know what the euphemism would necessarily be. And so I guess that's it. Until next time. And I'll see you next time. is just so not working. Um, Jack will cut this part out. Let me just think for a second where I was going to go. Jack, keep it in. <laughs> um, Jack, I'm your boss. Don't listen to him. <laughs> Turn away. Don't go into the light. Okay, yeah. Jack, these are not the droids you were looking for. Um, okay, this is all still being cut, Jack. <laughs> or, or your job will be. <laughs> um,